Welcome to the PCOS podcast. I'm your host, Selene Douglas, degree qualified nutritionist. This podcast is a place to help show you how to reduce your PCOS symptoms. Getting diagnosed with PCOS can be super confusing. It typically comes with very little information about what the condition actually is and how to manage it long-term. In this podcast, we cover the keys to understanding what PCOS is, the best approaches to improving your PCOS, and of course, how to reduce your PCOS symptoms through non-medication-based approaches. If you've been recently diagnosed with PCOS or you've had PCOS for a long time and you're wondering, what the heck do I do now and what do I need to do to reduce my symptoms, this podcast exists to show you exactly that. If you have PCOS and you want a strategic approach to help you lose weight, banish acne, stabilize your cycles, and reduce anxiety-inducing hair growth, then I would love to invite you to register for my free PCOS Masterclass. In this Masterclass, I'm going to be breaking down my exact process that I use when I'm helping clients like you reduce and resolve their PCOS symptoms without medication. To get access to the Masterclass, all you need to do is head to the link in the show notes, or you can access it directly by going to selendouglas.com forward slash webinar hyphen registration hyphen EG, or you'll find that link in the show notes below. High insulin is without a doubt the number one reason why it can be hard to lose weight with PCOS. And if weight loss is something that you're struggling with and you have PCOS, it's highly likely that this is at least part of the cause. That's exactly what we're talking about in this episode today. I did a two-part post last week over on Instagram and it was very popular. So I thought that I would expand a little bit more on this topic because obviously with a caption on Instagram, I am very tightly bound by a small word limit to communicate what I want to. So I thought we would go into it in a bit more depth in this episode. Now, of course, there are more reasons why it can be hard to lose weight with PCOS. And the second most common that I see is low thyroid function or even unidentified autoimmune issues. And that is something that we aren't going to go into in great depth in this episode, but we certainly can in another one. But insulin really is that primary number one factor. We see this time and time again in the statistics that it's 70 to 80% of cases of PCOS have an underlying Uh, issue with insulin resistance. And therefore, of course, that's going to make up the most common reason why in today's episode, we're going to go into actually how it causes weight gain in PCOS. Now, I also want to say I also used to be of the thought process that it was clearly defined, you know, insulin resistant or you don't have it. And if you didn't have insulin resistance, then blood sugar wasn't your problem if you had PCOS. When I first started seeing clients and, you know, even being mentored by other practitioners, this is something that I thought and this is something that was sort of taught to me. 
I am not seeing this in clients who I work with. What I see is that some people have insulin resistance and that is a sliding scale of severity, but all my clients with PCOS have issues with regulating their blood sugar. I haven't found one that doesn't, even if they're lean. They still exhibit symptoms of issues controlling their blood sugar, issues with their appetite, Uh, whether that's cravings, getting hungry really shortly after meals, those sorts of symptoms. And when I've had clients using other forms of testing, so not just fasting insulin, which is normally what I would recommend for looking into your insulin sensitivity, but not just that, but even looking into wearing something like the continuous glucose monitor or CGM, which I've talked about before, or even looking at insulin assay testing, I have seen that even clients actually who have a very beautiful, perfect fasting insulin and a, uh, you know, don't have necessarily those big red flag metabolic risk factors, that they actually still have underlying issues with insulin and blood sugar. And we can see that in that more sensitive testing. So, what I just want to make really clear here is that even if you don't struggle with the symptom of weight, as part of your PCOS presentation, it actually doesn't mean that you don't have a problem with insulin. So I just want to make that really clear. Of course, those two symptoms, the weight gain and the insulin are very commonly linked, but just because you don't struggle with weight doesn't mean you don't have an issue with insulin. So I want to highlight that, but of course, today we're going into the weight side of things. So let's start unpacking what is actually happening in your body when you have high insulin, why it happens, and what that actually means for PCOS and and for weight gain and fat storage. So insulin, if you don't know, is a hormone. It is produced by by your pancreas, and it gets released um, through what is called, you know, your blood sugar. Uh, response to your blood glucose levels. So basically what happens is you eat food, your blood sugar or blood glucose, we use those two terms interchangeably, will rise. And the role of insulin is to help regulate the level of sugar or glucose in your bloodstream. It's very important for your body to be able to regulate your blood sugars as tightly as possible. And when we talk about blood sugar dysregulation, it means that your body is actually struggling to regulate the amount of sugar that is in your blood um, at any given time. So that's really what blood sugar dysregulation means is that your body is struggling to regulate the sugar in your bloodstream. And that can cause short-term a variety of different symptoms, including issues concentrating, issues with your mood, issues with your energy levels. And long-term, especially when we are veering on the side of high blood sugars consistently, it can have a lot of more severe and serious long-term consequences. When left unmanaged, it can end up being type 2 diabetes, which doesn't mean that you that there's no solution there, but of course, that's where it's become more serious and we can end up with more potentially long-term damage in that situation. So, the role of insulin really in our body is to regulate the amount of sugar in the blood 
And it does that by allowing glucose to be taken into the cells where it can be used for energy or stored for later use. So that's really the role of it is we eat different foods. This increases our blood sugars. Our brain detects that signal, signals the pancreas, hey, there's been a rise in sugar. Please secrete some insulin because we need you to be able to open the cells and push that glucose in so that we can, again, reach that level of balanced sugar in the blood. So that's really how that whole process works in very, very simple terms. Now, blood sugar levels uh, become higher, as I said, after consuming uh, meals, but more particularly meals which are rich in complex in carbohydrates don't have to be complex but carbohydrates um so the body will then release that insulin in order to lower that blood sugar there is uh some insulin response from protein as well but nowhere near as much as carbohydrates and there is very very little to no insulin response from fats dietary fats So when we think about carbohydrates, these are all forms of carbohydrates. So of course, this is nuanced. I am not saying that sugar is the same as sweet potato, but we need to understand that all carbohydrates in varying degrees are going to turn into sugar in the blood. So it doesn't matter if you eat potato, it doesn't matter if you eat ice cream, it doesn't matter if you eat rice, it doesn't matter if you eat plain sugar. In different degrees, these will all turn into sugar in your bloodstream. And this means that you will have an insulin response initiated in order to then reduce your blood glucose after you eat a meal like that. That is really, really important to understand because a dietary and insulin can become high for a variety of different reasons. In this podcast today, we're focusing more on the dietary side of things, but there are other factors which I've mentioned so many times and talk about on Instagram all the time, which can affect our insulin, things like caffeine, stress, uh, inflammation, these sorts of things can, and liver function can affect our insulin. Today, we're talking about the dietary side of things. So, when there is a dietary excess in the kinds of foods which are triggering that glucose to rise, this means we're going to end up with insulin uh, spiking more often, essentially. So there's nothing inherently wrong with spiking our insulin. We also need to understand that, that it is a really natural, normal response for your blood sugars to rise after food. And the goal is never to have them not rise at all, obviously. But what we want is to create a slower curve. So I talked about this, I believe, on last week's episode. But when and we look at using a continuous glucose monitor, and this is, again, one of the benefits of using them, you will see the curve of your blood sugars after you eat food. And basically what we want to achieve is rather than a big sharp spike in our blood glucose levels, so rather than having them shoot up really, really quickly and then a consequential uh, spike down really, really fast, we want a beautiful slowed curve that doesn't go too high and it's just really nice and sustained. 
symptomatically, here's what that's going to look like. So if you eat something that spikes your glucose really significantly and drops it really significantly, uh, then this will mean that you likely get a bit of a high, you know, that that big um, dopamine endorphin reward hit shortly after eating. Then maybe within even 42 minutes to an hour, you actually might even start feeling tired, lethargic. And then really within two hours, you're like hungry again and actually usually craving the same food that you ate or similar style of food that you ate to spike it that high. And here's the kinds of foods that that might look like. So as I said, uh, all carbohydrates turn into sugar in our blood and we need to understand that. So let's just say you ate, I'm just picking a random example here, but um, what would be something that would spike that really significantly? It could even just be a piece of fruit and I'm not demonizing fruit. So no one come at me with that, but let's just say you ate a, um, an apple, for example, with no other food around it. You just ate an apple or you just ate a banana on its own. That is going to be something which is going to significantly spike your sugars and drop them down again. And if you think about a time when you might've been hungry and you've opted for something like that as a snack, did it keep you full? Probably not. And that is the exact thing that is happening in your sugars is when they drop down, you're unsatisfied and you're hungry again and you're looking for something else. And this often makes you feel snacky, unsatisfied, no matter what you eat. And that's where you get like the hangries and you want to like just eat anything that's in the in the pantry. You don't end up making the best food choices. And that's really that instability in our blood sugars that's like creating that vicious cycle and, of course, the insulin spike coming along with that. Now, let's say on a different, um, in a different scenario that you grabbed that banana and you actually put it into a smoothie and you had a couple of tablespoons of nut butter in there and some protein powder and you blended that up with some water or some collagen powder rather than protein powder, whatever. Um, maybe some chia seeds as well. So you've got some extra fiber in there. I can guarantee you that you are going to feel very different after having that versus the banana on its own. You are going to feel much more stable. You are going to feel fuller for much longer. And when it does come time to eat again, you are much more likely to actually want to make better food choices because of the curve of your blood sugar and what that's looked like, that it's been more stable. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that those two food choices are like the best options or anything like that. I was just giving that as an example so that you can understand the the spike basically of different forms of foods. Equally, if you were to um, go and eat, say, an omelet, like three eggs and maybe half an avocado, that obviously contains basically no carbohydrates, a tiny, tiny little bit from the avocado, but essentially none that is going to have even less of an impact on your blood sugar. That is going to keep you full, stable, satiated, and calm for a lot longer than the banana on its own. And to be honest, that's probably a better example that I should have gone with, but I don't script these episodes. So that would be a better example where 
the banana on its own does a great job at spiking your blood sugar, but the three eggs and the avocado barely do anything. And you can really feel that symptomatically. And if you were to wear a CGM, I can absolutely guarantee you, you would see this as very, very drastic differences in your blood sugar levels. So that's basically what's happening like on the blood sugar front. And it's important to understand that anywhere we're spiking blood sugars, we're going to see shortly afterwards a mirrored response in our insulin. So how does this all like play into the whole weight gain part for PCOS? Basically, when we are eating in a way that consistently keeps our blood sugars and our insulin elevated, our body is absolutely going to store more fat. There is just no question about it. When it's consistently maintained as elevated, you're going to be more predisposed to storing fat. Now, I did say that some people still have issues with regulating their blood sugars, uh, and it doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to struggle with the issue of weight. They don't necessarily have consistently high insulin, but they often have issues regulating their blood sugars and they still experience that volatility, but they don't necessarily have sustained high levels of insulin. So there's a bit of a difference there in how that presents. But basically when you maintain your insulin levels as being high and you're consistently eating meals that, or, you know, using or living out lifestyle factors, which cause it to be high, it's going to cause your body to store more fat. Insulin in nature is what's called an anabolic hormone. It means a building hormone, and it does a great job at doing that. High insulin levels can also inhibit the breakdown of lipolysis, which basically just means stored fat. And this means that even if you are consuming fewer calories than you burn, so you know calorie counting or reducing your calories intentionally, your body is very likely to still actually struggle to use any of your stored fat for energy when insulin levels remain high. So here's what that basically means. We're talking here about the hormonal role of food. So, you know, you see sometimes those graphics on Instagram that have like a line down the middle and they compare two different foods um, with the same amount of calories. And Here's an example of that. Um, I don't know the calories off the top of my head, but because I used this example before, let's go with it. The banana, which however many calories that is, because I just honestly, I'm not sure off the top of my head. And then um, two eggs, for example. And I don't know if that's an accurate comparison, but let's just pretend, for example, right now that they're the same amount of calories, the um, eggs and the banana. Let's just say they're the same amount of calories. What this is saying, so the fact that it can inhibit um, lipolysis, and this means that if you consume fewer calories than you burn, your body may still struggle to um, use any stored fat for energy when your insulin remains elevated. So I explained earlier that when you eat foods like, say, the banana on its own, that that is going to be something that causes your blood sugars to spike and your insulin to spike. So let's just say this is a very dramatic example, but let's just say you are like, I want to lose weight. This is a big goal of mine. I'm going to, you know, take the standard advice and I'm going to eat 1200 calories per day. Let's just say that is your approach. And because all you want to do is eat the 1200 calories a day, there's no other, you know, thought or nuanced conversation behind it. 
you decide that you're going to eat 1,200 calories from bananas alone. What is that going to do to your blood sugar and your insulin? I can tell you it's going to keep it high. It is going to spike up, down, left, right, and it's going to mean that your insulin remains high for a consistent period of time. Whereas if you ate that 1,200 calories, I'm sure you would get very over eggs, but let's just say you ate that 1,200 calories from eggs alone and that is all you ate, you would have a extraordinarily different blood sugar response and extraordinarily different insulin response. And I can nearly bet that you would actually lose weight through doing that if insulin was the reason that you weren't losing weight. It all comes back to that, working out why you're not losing weight. But if that's the reason, then through keeping your blood sugar more stable and therefore your insulin lower, you are much more likely to lose weight doing that. Please no one go and eat eggs and that's it. Please don't do that. But I'm doing using that as a an explanation to illustrate that there is a hormonal response to food, right? So when you eat uh, things higher in carbohydrates and only carbohydrates, then you are going to have more of a sustained blood sugar high and more of a sustained insulin high. And it's going to become very difficult for you to lose weight if high insulin is the reason you aren't losing weight. Whereas if we can get that blood sugar down, we can get that insulin down, you can actually initiate lipolysis and you can actually start burning fat for energy. So I hope that helps to illustrate why, you know, calorie counting or, you know, restricting calories or eating in a calorie deficit, it can actually be helpful, but it's more nuanced than that. And I would never put someone on a 1200 calorie diet ever, but um, still, you know, eating that restricted calorie diet can definitely cause um, weight loss, but it is more nuanced than that. We want to be thinking about what the hormonal response of food is in the blood because that's going to be really, really important if you have an issue with insulin in actually facilitating and allowing the body to lose weight. So essentially what we've talked about in this episode is really looking at how insulin can contribute to weight gain in PCOS. It is the most common reason for issues losing weight in PCOS. We absolutely know that. And if you struggle with symptoms like intense sugar cravings, obviously the difficulty losing weight, things like low energy, energy crashes in the afternoon, it is highly likely that this is part of the problem for you. And all of this means when we talk about insulin and blood sugar, that it's actually not enough to just move more and eat less. And this is the advice we often get for PCOS is just move more and eat less and you'll lose weight. It's as simple as that. It actually isn't. Eating in a calorie deficit in small amounts can actually still be helpful for weight loss in PCOS, but of course not to the extremes. And also it's really, really important to take that more nuanced approach towards PCOS, towards insulin, and eat in a way that prioritizes blood sugars um, rather than just focusing on eating less calories. You need to be eating the right amount of macronutrients to keep your blood sugars stable across the day, and that will actually allow your insulin to reduce so that you can then lose weight. Now, I've talked a lot about 
carbohydrates and the effects that they have in the blood. I am by no means demonizing carbohydrates or saying that everyone is suited to a low carbohydrate diet. That is not what I'm saying. But in instances where insulin resistance is being caused by a dietary excess in carbohydrates, then changing that can absolutely make a huge difference. And I see that time and time again. It can start making a difference in a matter of weeks. It can happen really, really quickly. And low carbohydrate is a spectrum. Some people consider 20 grams of carbohydrates per day to be low carbohydrates. Some consider under 50 grams to be low carbohydrate. And some consider anywhere up to 200 grams and under to be considered a low carbohydrate diet. So also remember that that in itself is a nuanced conversation. And for my clients, at least, I am never recommending an extreme low carb diet, but lower carbohydrate can often be really, really impactful for PCOS and weight loss. That's it for this week's episode. If this is something that you want to learn more about or you think that this could be a problem for you, then I highly recommend checking out our PCOS Glow Up product. It is often the quick win that you need to really help kickstart your weight loss journey with PCOS. You can head to the website, the Instagram, or the show notes, and you will find the links for it everywhere. Please feel free to reach out with any feedback around this episode or any questions that you have. I'm always happy to help you. Before you go, a quick reminder that any information discussed on the PCOS podcast is general in nature, does not take into account your personal health circumstances, and of course, does not replace medical advice.